Hey, and welcome to the Boss Stuff Podcast, episode 262. I'm your host, Emily Aries, the founder and CEO of Bossed Up. And today's conversation is a must listen. I'm sitting down with Joni Wickham, who is a native North Carolinian uh, with an incredible story of her rise into a position of power and leadership in Kansas City, Missouri politics, of all places. She's got a really transformational and inspiring personal narrative, and she recently wrote a book all about what she's learned about being a woman in leadership in local politics. And I was especially intrigued to sit down and talk with a Southern woman in leadership. But as a native New Englander now living in the West, I feel like I have often glossed over the cultural differences that come with gender norms regarding geography. (laughs) Now, that's not the only thing that um, Joni and I talk about in this interview. We also get into politics into policy change, into racial and gender justice, and how important this year's election, which I hope you are all already registered for and ready to vote in, is especially for people who care about justice and combating oppression and getting us back on track in a way that helps, frankly, lift as we climb. Here's a little bit about Joni first. A native of Raleigh, North Carolina, Joni and her indisputable Southern accent arrived in Kansas City almost 10 years ago after leading initiatives within state and federal government as well as advocacy organizations. In her eight years with the mayor's office and the majority of them spent as chief of staff, Joni has proven herself as an accomplished political strategist, communications expert, and organizational leader. She directed public policy initiatives, communication tactics, and administrative decision-making during her tenure, all while promoting women's leadership and empowerment issues. An artful negotiator, Joni helped steer Mayor Sly James's major development projects in Kansas City while raising the city's profile at the national and international levels. Her front row seat at City Hall shed light on how local government is still very much a man's world. And that's part of the reason why she recently published her new book, The Thin Line Between Cupcake and Bitch. Joni Wickham, welcome to the Bossed Up Podcast. It's so nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you here. And you know, I was listening to some interviews and reading up on you before this call, and just that accent of yours reminded me that here at Bossed Up, I am such I have had such a blind spot as a, a, a New England native now living in Denver, Colorado. I don't think we've ever talked to an actual Southern feminist woman on this podcast before, and that is a crying shame. Well, I am just happy to be the first. Thanks for thinking of me. What an honor. (laughs) Yeah, and I have to give a huge shout out to our mutual friend, uh, an alum of our Bossed Up Bootcamp Leadership Program, Lauren, who sent your info my way saying, you have got to talk to Joni because her her new book, The Thin Line Between Cupcake and reminds me so much of what Bossed Up is all about. And I have to say, Lauren was definitely onto something. We have a lot in common. She is amazing. Um, and I agree. Yeah, I think we do have a lot in common. <laughs> so, Joni, you have had a long career now in politics, which is fantastic. And as a fellow former political operative and a powerful woman in my own right, I am excited to talk to you about 
what it was like carving your own path in a very male-dominated industry as a powerful woman in your own right. So first, why don't you take us back to the very beginning? Because I think what makes your book and your whole take on these topics really interesting is your candor about your humble your humble start. Um, I, I couldn't help but notice that you you shared that your mom was just 14 years old when she became pregnant with you. Tell us about what growing up was like and how that shaped your perspective on the world. Sure. You're absolutely right. Um, My mom found out that she was pregnant with me at the ripe old age of 14. Um, It was really difficult. And navigating generational poverty, undereducation, and yes, even gender bias, honestly stuck with me throughout my upbringing and really um, was kind of like a North Star for me when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. I watched my own family navigate the political system uh, in terms of public policy outcomes, things like having to apply for unemployment and food stamps, things like that. And I saw firsthand and experienced firsthand how public policy and elected officials can positively or negatively impact the daily life of families and particularly families that um, are headed up by women. So yeah, you're right. My my upbringing is definitely not typical of um, a lot of folks who have long careers in politics. Um, I don't come from a family that was able to make uh, campaign contributions in order to get noticed and get your foot in the door. Um, most of my family members um, don't vote. I have a couple of family members who, because of their criminal records, can't vote anymore. So yeah, I'm not a very typical political operative at all. And if it hadn't been for mentorship and sponsorship of honestly both men and women, I don't know where I would be right now. (laughs) Well, I mean, you have definitely benefited from mentorship and sponsorship, but you've also worked your own tail off to become the first college graduate from your family. And I think so many of my listeners can relate to that pursuit of the American dream via education. So when you graduated with that degree, I'm sure you felt the pressure of intergenerational poverty and overcoming it. How did you begin at that point? How did you begin to take charge of your career, um, knowing that you were really carving a path for yourself that hadn't hadn't been laid out for you? To my mom's and my grandparents' credit, they always established high expectations for me. And contrary to anybody and anything around me, they always expected that I would go to college. And I, I think just having that expectation helped, um, mm-hmm. helped me with my confidence. And it helped me see that the place that I was born into and uh, some of the dynamics that I saw around me didn't have to be the rest of my life. I really credit my my mom and my grandparents for making sure that I understood that just because I was born into that situation didn't mean I was um, going to stay there or that uh, that they expected me to stay there. But you're right. It was incredibly hard work proving to myself and other people outside my family that I deserved a shot. Um, I wrote my mm-hmm. book about how one of my high school English teachers accused me of plagiarism. And that was kind of a soul crushing moment because 
I mean, my God, we're, we all have our gifts and our talents. And we all have things that we don't necessarily excel at. Um, I can barely balance my, my checkbook. And I have a first grader now. And trying to help her with math is really challenging. But I've always had a knack for, for writing. I've always been a good writer. And um, to be a young high school girl trying to leverage that skill and be accused of plagiarism that's just one example of the type of um, bias that I I faced um, just yeah. based on where I came from and people's uh, expectations of where I um, should be able to go. I think there are so many people, folks of color especially, women, and all kinds of marginalized folks who know exactly what that feels like. Right. right? When someone others lower expectations of you are projected onto you in a way that makes you question your own belonging, right? Yeah, it's, so. yeah, and that's called imposter syndrome, which is another topic that I write about in the book. And an imposter syndrome is that feeling that you don't belong or you don't deserve to be in the room. You don't deserve um, the level of success or achievement that you've realized. So yeah, you're exactly right. How did you overcome that? I'm sure it's not the last time you felt like an imposter or were made to feel like an imposter. As you navigated your way into Kansas City politics, how did you how did you experience sort of that that othering that happens far too often and how did you persevere anyway? For me, imposter syndrome is not something that I've gotten over. It's something I deal with almost every day. There are so many moments and situations and rooms that I walk into and I wonder how the hell did I get here? It's just something that some of us um, honestly struggle with throughout our entire lives. Um, but I, I do try to remind myself um, of, of how hard I've worked to have the skills that I have and the expertise um, that I've developed over the years. And I try to remind myself that even though from time to time my imposter syndrome shows and I don't necessarily feel that I deserve some of the accolades that I've gotten or I don't kind of understand why anyone would want to hear mm -hmm. my expertise on women's leadership, um, that I, I have accomplished a lot over the years. And I do have um, some expertise to give to folks around me. But I just know for me, imposter syndrome is always going to be something that I deal with. Um, and, and some of it is gender bias. You know, as we were saying, when, when you feel that negativity of bias and low expectations that other people place on you, uh, it does kind of make it hard to kind of kick imposter syndrome to the curb forever. So it really is a daily issue that I work on. And I think a lot of women are like that. And men too. Imposter syndrome is something that men deal with as well. Yeah, definitely. I could not agree further. And you rose to serving as the chief of staff uh, on behalf of Kansas City, Missouri Mayor Sly James, uh, a a Black African-American, right, American leader. How do you feel like leadership is a challenge, not only for you, uh, a woman chief of staff managing others' expectations, not to mention work, on behalf of a, a Black mayor? Like, where does the gender bias meet racial bias for you. And I, I'd just be curious your take on overcoming um, those two forms of, of oppression while serving as chief of staff. It was so interesting um, for me to have that kind of front row seat right beside him. Um, I served as his chief of staff for 
close to six years. But growing up in the rural South, as I did, I thought I knew what racism was until I started working for Sly James and saw that he was often too Black for some people and not Black enough for other people and how that impacted his own expectations and his own worldview. I also watched as he tried to to bring both worlds together mm-hmm. and, and the difficulties that that brought with it. Um, there were some folks when I was appointed chief of staff who were kind of surprised that this um, young woman from North Carolina would be appointed the, the chief of staff to a mayor that was born and raised in um, in Kansas City. I think they expected him to appoint um, someone that was Black. So that was kind of interesting to, to navigate. And then we also traveled quite a bit together and, and still do, well, in, until COVID happened. And it is really entertaining to watch other people's reaction to us, for example, walk onto an airplane together. People just look at us like, what is the deal with this duo? What is the dynamic here? It's just kind of funny to see people look at us. Yeah, it's funny to see them try to place you, I bet. Like, what are the different combinations of how these two people could possibly be stepping onto this plane together? Yeah. And of course, like elected official and chief of staff don't come to mind or elected official and consultant don't come to mind right off the bat, I bet. What inspired you then to turn around, having served in this chief of staff role, having a young daughter yourself, you know, starting your own political communications firm, which is incredible, congrats, um, and write this book? What made you want to write this book, The Thin Line Between Cupcake and Bitch? Honestly, this book has been my lived experience. I wanted to write it because I wanted young women who may be sitting in her own trailer park, surrounded by her own generational poverty or undereducation, to understand that if I could find my own path, then she could too. That was really important to me. And then I also wanted to write a book about leadership and communication and how different leadership styles and different communication styles can be useful And they don't necessarily have to be destructive to each other. And I wanted this book to be a tool for both men and women to think about how they can consider leadership styles and communication styles differently so that perhaps we can all work together a bit better. Yes, I want to ask you about that because your background seems to have made you as a communications expert a cross-cultural communicator, right? You've you've transcended class, race, gender in all of these different experiences of yours. What kinds of tactics or tools or takeaways do you feel like are important for others to know to be effective communicators, especially in a divided nation, right? Like I'm thinking about this year's political cycle and just how divided and divisive certain politicians are more so than others And it can be really hard to communicate across identity lines and across, you know, social categorization. So I I wonder, what are some of the the tried and true That is such a good question. Revelations that you've had over your career. We're living in a more divisive and divided political atmosphere than we ever have, certainly over my lifetime. 
I think two things are really important and are frequently missing from today's political discourse. And those are active listening and empathy. Um, (laughs) I, I see so many times, whether it be a political debate on TV whether it be uh, an interview on the radio, whether it just be a political conversation between folks in a restaurant. We do not take the time to listen to each other. It's all about sound bites and trying to get your point across. And I wish people would think for a second that perhaps I should listen to what the other side is telling me. Perhaps I should try and Um, really put myself in the position to understand what their value system is so that then I can understand where they're coming from and develop a solution to whatever issue we're trying to solve. So active listening, I think, is extremely important and missing a lot. And then Mm -hmm. the other issue is empathy. I mean, there have been times over the past few years that I just feel like empathy is a lost friggin' art in politics. (laughs) I mean, it's sad. Um, So... Empathy is something that uh, comes with emotional intelligence, another topic that I write about in the book. And empathy is needed in leadership and communication because it really creates um, conditions for us to um, get outside of our own feelings, our own values, and think about how other people see the world and how they experience an issue or a problem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think these three concepts, empathy, emotional intelligence, and active listening, I I feel like we I want to hand your book to all the men I know <laughs> and be like, here, gentlemen, these are the three characteristics of great leadership that your folks, like men, typically need to work more on this because we haven't been socializing them to be active listeners and empathic men and boys their entire lives. A lot of the women leaders I work with tend to do those elements well, right? Have those elements under control. It's the assertiveness and and sort of balancing it as the subject or the title rather of your book acknowledges. That's the challenge is when is it when are you doing too much active listening and being too empathetic and not standing up for yourself? Like how can you balance that line of of being an advocate and champion on behalf of the causes that you're trying to advocate for? while also being empathic. And this is the subject that I honestly think I've devoted my career to getting into. But I'm sure that a chief of staff, you've balanced that leadership element of active listening and empathy and emotional intelligence with, okay, we need to we need to get this done. We need to get this across the finish line. What's been your like what's the fine line <laughs> or the thin line to you? Yeah, I have always tried to have self-awareness and understand where my strengths are and what I can bring to the table given the situation and the players in the room. And I don't think every situation is the same. So there were some situations when I was chief of staff that I really needed to kind of lead into my cupcake role. Perhaps the mayor was having a hard time getting along with a particular city council person, whatever it was. I needed to come in, be a little more cupcake so I could kind of smooth things over and, and get results that way. And then there were other days and other situations and other bad actors that they just needed to see bitch mode come out in full force. And (laughs) I didn't, I had no problem at all navigating from one side of the line to the other 
because I, I felt like it was incumbent upon me to understand where my skills could be um, could be best used given the situation and the dynamics. And so after I had kind of done those middle gymnastics to figure out which side right. of the line was best for the given situation, I just went for it. Um, and I'll yeah. tell you, it was so interesting to me. Um, <laughs> some of my former mayor staff would not believe this, but I would say overall, I leaned more on the cupcake mode in terms of getting things done without being afraid to go into bitch mode. And when I went into bitch mode, it, it tended to really make people kind of lean forward and listen and pay attention because I wasn't constantly a bull in a china shop. I'm sure you work with people right. who like are always pissed at something. They're always mad at something and they're always are like coming at whatever situation um, is in front of them like a bull in a china shop. I don't think that's effective. Um, so I always tried to kind of um, come at a situation based on whatever dynamics were in front of me. However, kind of skewing a little bit towards cupcake mode. So when I did have to go into bitch mode, people were like, oh God, we really screwed up here. She's mad. <laughs> yeah, I think your point is well taken. I think the fact of the matter is that we need to be audience centric in strategic communications, which I'm sure you are familiar with, right? Like what does this particular person need to hear from me to make this outcome happen? And the research bears out exactly what you're saying. Assertive communication can be a total tripwire for women, but it's the women who are comfortable being assertive but aren't always assertive that are highly rated as leaders. So you can't be constantly fighting every battle. you got to pick your battles, um, but definitely not be afraid to use both skill sets. I guess the question for me is, even your terminology here, cupcake and bitch, it really reminds me of the Southern dynamics at play here in particular. I feel like Southern women are raised, and this is very naive and maybe a little ignorant because I wasn't raised in the South, but you know, the gender norms of being a cupcake, that is not even something I, I would hear in the Northeast or the West for my for my current proximity to the wild, wild West here. So I wonder, like, as you're raising your daughter in particular, how are you approaching parenting with more of a feminist lens? And do you feel like you're, you're being raised in the rural South impacted how you approach uh, being a powerful woman today? You know what? I've never considered that, but I do think you're absolutely right because certainly being raised in the South, in the rural South, there were absolute gender norms um, at play. Uh, I know for a fact that when we would have like family gatherings and stuff, None of the men, bless their hearts, um, would ever think about cleaning up the dishes or anything like that. Um, so, yeah, I definitely think there were gender norms at play, whether I realized it or acknowledged it. And I definitely try um, to teach my daughter, my seven-year-old, and I have two adult stepdaughters, too, and we kind of talk about these issues from time to time. I just want them to know that they can do and be anything that they want to. And if other people have a problem with their goals or their expectations for themselves, 
it's other people's problems and not theirs. I never had the luxury of really understanding that when I was growing up. And I think it has to be freeing to really understand in your heart and your soul and your brain that you you really can do and be anything you want to be. And other people's stereotypes or social or gender norms are their problems to deal with, not yours. And how do you feel like the men in your life are modeling that too? I am so lucky uh, to have two of the most supportive men who are closest to me in my life, my husband and my business partner, Mayor Sly James. They both are extremely supportive of all of the, the dimensions of who I am, wife, mom, friend, you know, all of that stuff. Um, and I wish every woman had that um, real blessing that, that I have um, because it's irreplaceable. The fact that, that I can be authentic and comfortable in my own skin around the two men in my life who mean the, mo- the most to me, um, it's invaluable. It really is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's you you do touch upon this, it sounds like a lot in your book, that we can't combat unconscious gender bias without men being involved in a really big way. And I, I think we're finally having not only a long overdue racial reckoning in America right now, but a, a reckoning around masculinity being just as constraining for men as you know, stereotypical historical femininity being very limiting for women. And I don't have I don't have kids, but I always say that I think parenting is one of the most direct ways to change gender norms because the choices you make in a personal way impact the broader societal expectations, kind of in a similar way that our our personal politics impact the body politic. Um and I want to ask you, I want to, I can't, I would be like remiss to have you on and not talk a little 2020 electoral politics with you right now. I'm very excited about 2020, especially with the uh, VP nod going to Senator Kamala Harris. Um, I'm curious, what is your, what are your thoughts on why this message in your book is more important now more than ever and and how women and all people who care about gender equality should be thinking about this year's election. I am so excited about the the Biden-Harris ticket and Senator uh, Harris in particular. She She's talked about this publicly, and you can almost see it sometimes in, in her interviews. She's also lived that thin line between cupcake and bitch, being a prosecutor, being a senator. Um, I am such a big fan of hers. And I was sitting on my couch when she gave um, her speech at the DNC with my seven-year-old with tears just running down my face, crying. I am not a crier. Just running down my face and crying because it was so thrilling, exhilarating, if you will, to see this amazing, confident woman of color um, just doing her thing. And um, I think you're right. I think this is a moment where um, America can choose uh, the type of leadership and um, the type of vision that it wants. And um, Senator Harris is a huge part of that. 
Um, and, and I just, I love the way she has developed this, um, rapport and this relationship, um, with, uh, vice president Biden. And I think it's, it is in my mind, and this is probably my bias considering, uh, my relationship with, with mayor James, I think it is as important for young women and young women leaders to see her with him and the respect that he has for her. I feel like that is just as important for young women to see as it is for them to see her with that speech at the DNC. For for women and young women in particular to see um, relationships between men and women that are built on mutual respect, I think is really important. Oh my God, yes. Yes, like a million times yes. I'm nodding my yeah. head off over here because like the idea of him passing her the political baton, yeah. you know, and just them like being partners in crime. It's just like, you know what I mean? That's like, it's just such a rare thing. And it reminds me so much of you and and the mayor because you two are partners. And so many people can't figure that out. Just like so many people aren't used to seeing a professional duo of of different genders that have mutual respect for one another. That's a really interesting take I have not heard before. It was it was interesting to me. There were a few times when Mayor James and I were in the mayor's office and we would be talking about whatever issue it was. And he would stop the conversation and look at me and say, Joni, what do you think? In front of other decision makers. And man, that is empowering and true sponsorship. And you can just see that that um, Vice President Biden does that for Senator Harris. Right. Totally. I think also it's so easy for in today's very cynical environment to forget that putting people in power who actually believe in uplifting mm-hmm. and championing people across racial, socioeconomic geographic spectrums matters, like what that actually means on the ground in terms of policy. And as someone like in your shoes who has grown up um, and and lived out this American dream in the most true sense of the concept, I, I wonder what you see as on the line in this year's election when it comes to real policy change that can actually help uplift and help change people's lives and help people who need it most. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think so much is on the line for this country in this election. Um, Just to name a few, whether or not we respect people who don't look like us, that is a very real value that's on the line. Um, And I think the, the American dream in and of itself is on the line because what I have seen so much of in the past four years is this sense that if you get something, it takes away from my pie. And that is not the American dream that I know about. The American dream that I know about is that we can all have a bigger piece of the pie. And just because I get a piece of the pie doesn't mean you're not going to get a piece of the pie. Um, So I just feel like we are at an extremely critical point in our nation's history. Um, And I am just... Um, hopeful, I really am hopeful <laughs> that um, 
the American people will see that where we have been, kind of like my own life, where we have been does not necessitate or um, predict where we can go. Right. Yes. Well said. Joni, thank you so much for sharing your time, your talent, your expertise with our audience. Bossed up listeners, I'm sure you're ready to vote, right? You're all registered. We've double checked our registration. We are ready to put those mail ballots in early this year. Let's do our part to make sure we have an active role in shaping our nation's future. Joni, if our lovely listeners want to catch up with you, where can they learn more about your fantastic work at Wickham James and get your book, Between Cupcake and <laughs> Yes, please go to www.wickhamjames.com and you can learn more about me, my work, and you can grab this book. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. We'll definitely drop a link in today's show notes. Uh, Joni, it's been such a pleasure having you on the pod today. Thanks. This has been so much fun. Thank you. For links to learn more about Joni and her work, head to bossedup.org slash episode 262. And now it's time for this week's boss move of the week. This week's boss move is a shout out to our very own hired client named Deb. Deb recently signed on for the Hired Job Search Accelerator. And here's what she posted about in the Bossed Up Courage community in response to a recent Fierce Friday check-in. If you know, you know. If you don't, get in on the Bossed Up Courage community right now by clicking the link in today's show notes. Here's what Deb had to say. Quote, I am proud of stepping back, taking a refreshing breather from the exhaustion, stress, and disappointment of my recent job hunting, stepping into a nice bubble bath with a great glass of Brunello di Montalcino. I don't think I pronounced that right, but it sounds delicious. In my hand, very careful not to drop it in the tub, and choosing to smile, knowing that my hired accelerator adventure will be coming to my rescue next week. Yeah, baby. <laughs> That's awesome, Deb. I'm so proud of you for not only taking care of yourself, but taking that step back to take stock of what's not working and get help, right? Our three-month accelerator program for job seekers is no joke. It's pretty intensive. It involves completely reconfiguring your entire approach to the job search so that you can launch a super targeted, strategic communications-informed job search that pays off. So I'm so excited to be working with you, Deb. And uh, I'm going to have to get the name of that bottle of champagne or whatever that bubbly is and uh, and take a page from your book and get step into a bubble bath sometime this week because I need it. <laughs> for lack of a better word, I've I've been overworking for the past like month. And I'm excited to step back and step into a new path forward myself. So shout out to you, Deb, and thanks for checking in. If you have a boss move to share or a career conundrum that you want me to unpack with one of my expert guests on an upcoming podcast episode, don't hesitate to give my Bossed Up podcast hotline a ring right now at 910-668-BOSS or 2677. Your voicemails are always preferred, but your emails and messages are always welcome as well. Just email me at info at bossedup.org. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on this interview today. Share your thoughts on social media. Tag me at Emily Aries or bossedup.org. Make sure y'all are ready to vote in this year's election. And let's continue to, in the wise words of the original motto from the very first American Black Women's Club back in 1896, said, let's lift as we climb.